Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. My guest today has worked in management across various industries for the past 20 years. She first became aware that her mental health was in crisis back in 2009 after experiencing a breakdown, and after seeking medical help was diagnosed with depression and bipolar disorder, and it was from that point that her journey of healing began. She realized that to overcome her condition, she would have to completely change her lifestyle and begin to understand and gain a deeper connection with herself. Fast forward to today, 10 years later, she has been able to fully transform her life and become a totally new person because of all her hard work and dedication to get better. She also recently started her own podcast called Vulnerability Rocks to provide a platform for her and her guests to share and discuss their own stories and struggles with mental health in the hope that her listeners can learn from other people who have had similar experiences and help them overcome their own issues. During this episode, we discuss her journey with mental health, she shares with us her knowledge and techniques that have helped her along the way. And we talk about the importance of becoming aware of our own mental health and not being afraid to seek out the help that we need. Listening to her story, her journey, and the challenges she overcame during these past 10 years was incredibly moving. Her desire and willingness to be open, vulnerable, and to share is something I truly admire and I believe that a lot of people could learn from her experience. And the best piece of advice she shared was to remind people to be kinder to themselves and that your journey of healing starts with sharing. Please welcome to the show, the incredible Miss Emma Bell. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Uh, so Emma, I wanted to talk to you today because it sounds like you've had quite a interesting journey in regards to mental health and mental health is something that you're quite passionate about as well and over the last few years it's also become a big part of my life too so anytime someone who's been through their own experiences and has you know things to share on mental health and wants to promote it I'm always interested to talk to them mm -hmm. so I thought I'd start from when did mental health actually start becoming you know a priority in your life how did you begin your journey of mental health good question so <laughs> I suppose there's two levels of answer to that. The first one would be, when was I aware that mental health was an issue in my life? Um, and the second one would be, when did mental health first affect my life? And they are two very different answers, actually. <laughs> um, so I will answer, when was I aware first? So okay. <laughs> I became aware that mental health would be a massive um, feature, if you like, in my life. Um, and I've since come to realize blessing because of everything that it's taught me and the person that I now am as a result of suffering with a mental health crisis. Um, but I only became aware of how important looking after and being aware of my mental health was when I was in crisis. So it took me to have a complete breakdown in 2009 for me to really realize or have any real awareness that I had a lot of work to do. Um, and realizing the level of work that I had to do in total honesty has never stopped. It has evolved I don't think it ends I think it just becomes something that you weave into your life and actually not even weave into your life it is already permeating every single area of your life whether it be relationships work friendships family sexual health physical health you name it 
until you become aware of it, you're not aware of how how much it affects. So it took me to have a complete breakdown in 2009, um, where I went to the doctors, got diagnosed with depression, got put on an antidepressant, and as a result, went sky high and experienced mania. What I now know to be the second manic episode that I'd had in my life. Um, the first when I was 16, but I just didn't know what it was. So I got put in antidepressants at the age of 29 um, and then went completely sky high and became completely manic, having paranoid, delusional thoughts because, and I hate to use the word just depression, but I didn't just have, and I don't mean just in the minimizing sense, I didn't just have depression I actually have bipolar so when I say just it's not in the minimizing fashion at all because depression is hard and it's gutty and it's so difficult to climb out of and depression is a mood state that I have as part of my overall condition of bipolar so I have depression bipolar you have depression and you have hypermania and mania so it's a whole spectrum on the mood disorder. So it's very, um, you cannot treat somebody with bipolar in the same way that you treat somebody that has depression, i.e. the medication, because it's a bit like having an uncapped mortgage. <laughs> There's no regulator with, with bipolar. You have no regulator on the low mood and no regulator on the high mood. So when you get depressed, you can go very, very, very depressed. And when you get um, of high mood, there's no cap on that either. So you just go sky high. Some people go medium high and some people go sky high. So for me, putting me on medication for, to treat depression is great because I came out of the depression quite quickly. But I then went straight into mania, which sounds fun. But actually, it's not. It can manifest as irritability, paranoia, delusions. Um, I was not sleeping at, at all. So I basically probably had about half an hour, an hour's sleep a night for two odd weeks. When I got put on those antidepressants, I was convinced that the decorators that were painting the outside of the building, which is a massive apartment block, were coming every day just to spy on me. Um, oh wow yeah that they were coming every day to spy on me that they were coming every day to laugh at me I was in my flat with the curtains shut in the dark shuffling paper from pile to pile to pile um, and in the end my friend came around and she said Emma this is not right you are not right you are not this isn't depression alone it's something more and we need to go to the doctors and it was at that point that I then started being assessed for bipolar and I got put on the right medication for someone with bipolar, which manages the top end of your mood and the bottom end of your mood. So it helps you to regulate the highs and the lows and keeps you somewhere in the middle. Okay. That's really interesting because as I, as you know, I can imagine it's hard enough as just, you know, everyday people who, struggle to manage their emotions but when you have two such extremes that just adds a whole nother layer of complexity so i guess 
how did you start figuring out like how to balance that out was it the medication that like began that began that process but after that was it do you have to continue taking medication or now do you have practices and you've you know over like been experiencing it for a while so now you kind of have a way to or other techniques you know start to balance out that mood and you know to regulate it so that's um the simple answer to that is in that manic well not simple answer in that manic phase I was then becoming very reckless and um took attempts on my life so the medication that I got put on antipsychotics and I was on them for about two and a bit two three years now I was only able on when I was on those antipsychotics I was only able to be awake for six hours or seven hours a day because they knocked me out I became like a zombie I had no emotions I didn't laugh much I didn't cry at all um somebody died not super close to me but close enough that I should have been feeling some emotion um and I was like "Eh, well that's really sad but I didn't have any emotion. (laughs) So it was a really weird time. They just totally stripped me of my emotions. However, they saved my life. And what they did do is they gave me the opportunity to stabilize. So I believe that strong medications have a place and they have a place certainly when medical intervention is required because you are at risk or you are putting other people at risk. So it's a very individual decision that needs to be made carefully and timing is everything. So for me, I had no awareness of my condition. I had no awareness how to manage it. I had no awareness how to change my life at that time to live in the way that I needed to live, to be respectful of the condition that I have to make the most out of my living experience. So in a way I needed that I needed something to just stop me and stabilize me and it did that Mm -hmm. and it saved it saved my life so and then once I got stable I could go into therapy I had counseling I had different types of therapy and I changed my lifestyle not enough but it was a good start and it was enough for me to then three years later go back and say I can't live like this anymore in this zombie place. So I switched my medication to something that wasn't so strong, but I had some tools at that point to manage. I didn't have any tools when I got diagnosed. Yeah, yeah. Was it, I'm curious, was the, the like like you mentioned, being aware was, you know, step one in this, mm-hmm. in your healing journey was, I guess the catalyst or the thing that really took it to the next level is when you finally, like you said, I think accepted it. Uh, This is, you know, something that I have, this is something that I have to live with. And now I have to make the changes to live my life with, you know, accepting and as Mm -hmm. with this condition that I have. Yeah. So acceptance definitely came in stages for me. So the first thing was a desire to get better and go back to normal whatever normal is <laughs> yeah in inverted commas <laughs> whatever normal is right exactly. and um let's face it that doesn't exist so um it, it it 
I could never have gone back. But my intention at the time certainly was to get better, was to get back to my normal self without really realizing that getting back to my normal self would have been taking me back to being unwell. But I was kind of I was kind of striving to get back to being myself again. Now, there's a there's a difference between getting back to the life that I had before and getting back to my personality and feeling happy. But guess what? In order to be healthy, I actually needed to be different to how I was before or I would end up unwell again. And that's the bit that took me a bit of time, like three steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, one step back, because I had to learn I had to unlearn everything I thought was right in order to adopt a lifestyle where I could be well. So acceptance came in waves, really, for me. The first one was, I've got it. Okay, I'm going to fight it. After I got stable, right now, now I'm going to change my medication. I'm going to go on to lower medication. I'm going to try and manage it in all these ways. I'm going to get up and I'm going to fight it. But it was me and it every day. Then it was okay, well, that doesn't really work because it's not two things. This is now, I have to accept this as part of me and be respectful of that and kind to that dynamic and learn how we live in harmony. (laughs) And actually, I just embody a different way of living. So acceptance has definitely taken time. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, I think you mentioned something very interesting that acceptance came for you in stages because in my mind it was always like I've accepted it it's you know this this event has happened and now I've officially accepted it but I think you make a very good point that no acceptance actually does come in stages what first of all is maybe vocalizing it and saying it I accept it and then it's like okay how do I embody this how do I start making the changes to go along with this acceptance that you talked about Mm. and then there was a fear aspect so I then um, got to a point where I did lots of different therapies lots of different self-helps I went to bipolar support groups and I thought yeah I've got loads of tools now in my bag and now I can think about coming off this medication entirely which I did and but the way I was combating that was in a real sort of fighting spirit. So I was up every single day and um, exercising, running, fighting. But it was I was still fighting rather than being. Um, and the only way I could keep my mental illness at bay was to keep busy, work, run this that you know and eventually you realize that that's not I was that's still coming my action is still coming from fear and all the time you're acting out of fear it, it don't get me wrong it was a necessary part of my journey because again it was another layer of accepting it, it, it but I what I really needed to do was sit still and feel and unpick and unpack and figure stuff out because to the side of my mental health diagnosis everybody has their stuff and until you sit down and unpack that and realize how those things trigger you you 
you can't work out how that might trigger your mental health condition. So there was a lot of subtle things that needed me to really look at them. And that's where my trauma work began. And trauma sounds like a heavy word, but everybody has it. It can be subtle. It can be big. It doesn't have to be abuse. It can be a whole range of things. But when you start doing trauma work, you realize how many things you have carried with you and hold resentment for and hold fear for. And until you unpick those things, you can't really manage your mental health condition entirely. One, because you don't take full responsibility for it. And two, because you're not aware of all of your triggers and your triggers will trigger your mental health condition. Wow. <laughs> Listening to your journey, it's the amount of work you've had to do on yourself. Number one is admirable. And I congratulate you <laughs> on everything that you've done because it's not easy. It, like I can't even imagine how difficult it is. I'm just thinking of my own you know, journey without you know any uh, like a medical condition and i've struggled and felt like oh, i've accomplished you know so much and all these things you're talking about about triggers about you said something in um your podcast with m that really resonated with me and it was about your motivations and like your core values and what drives you because s having a goal or for example i think the example you used was when you're going to the gym am i why am i going to the gym am i going just for an aesthetic reason or what's what's that driver behind it and if the driver doesn't match or the drivers are not maybe clear that can cause a lot of i think confusion and probably internal struggle when you're trying to make all the changes that you know you're trying to make so all that unpicking does that just come back to the drivers in particular would you say yeah so what what's your narrative so aside from my mental health condition because of my experiences through life and everybody has got them they everyone's differ greatly but everyone will build internal narratives and the narratives that drive us these narratives drive us because they are the voice that is in our head constantly and whether we're aware of them or not they are driving everything that we do so it's always about what is your narrative and it and until you work out what your narrative is you can't work out where it came from so you have to work out what your narrative is to work out where it came from to then work out how that makes you feel and why and mm. these are the most important things so over the last 12 months I have been learning because, yes, I do have bipolar and chemically it, it's proven that that is what I'm managing. However, it is fueled by these life experiences that I have that have given me these internal narratives so why was I going to the gym was I going to the gym because I was saying to myself inside my head between these little ears of mine was I saying um you deserve to go to the gym because your body deserves to move because you're amazing and you deserve this and your body deserves to feel this movement mm -mm, nope that was not what I was saying. I was talking very badly to myself. I was saying that I needed to go because I was disgusting, because I was fat, because I was hideous, because I was um, not good enough for people. So if I go and do this, then I would be good enough. Yeah, yeah. So I'm operating out of shame, self-shame and fear. 
that's never a sustainable motivation for real change. When we shame ourselves into doing things, it works for a while because we are white knuckle riding through that change. But there's exactly. no there's no embracing the change. There's no real absorbing that change and feeling it and being it because we're too busy bashing ourselves to change. So we think, oh no, I hit myself a bit harder, then I'll change. <sighs> it works for a while, but it doesn't tend to work forever because the belief is still the same. Exactly. Yeah, that's so true. Um, one thing that I recently read about was how our thoughts affect our feelings. So everything that you just said uh, about the shame. So you might be able to overcome it for a small amount of time and deal with that feeling or that shame or that fear. But if the thought behind it has never changed and that's just going to keep coming again and again and again. So I totally resonate with what you're talking about. And even in my own experience, uh, particularly with the gym, when I first started a few years ago, I was overweight. So my motivation to go was, you know, like you said, I'm not good enough. I'm, I don't look good. Uh, you know, all these kinds of, I'm not healthy, all these negative things. And now after putting in the work and three years later, the motivation completely has shifted to now I want to do this because I know it's good. I know it's good for me and I feel good. I you know, physically feel good after it. So I think, and it makes it so much more enjoyable mm -hmm. as well. Like my motivation, I'm a, it's a happy motivation, not, mm. it doesn't come from a negative place. So mm. I totally, totally agree with you. I wanted to, I was curious to ask you, why do you think it's so important to gain a deeper understanding of ourselves and, you know, who, who we are, you know, on the inside? Why is that such an important thing for us to start making these huge, you know, changes in our life? Hmm. So this, I mean, this sort of digging around of myself on a really messy, ugly level has really only been for me in the last year that I've been doing that because I've always been of the mindset that I just need to banish my mental health and everything will be fine but it's so much more deep rooted than that and oh, I suppose maybe I can only answer it from my own perspective why is it so important for me and that is sure, yeah. that is because I've realized that despite all of the work that I've done I still had all of this negative narrative running through my head. And it's not just about exercise. It could be about anything. Um, and also digging around in your childhood, although it's painful, it's so necessary. Um, so for me, for example, at the moment, I'm actively trying to have a family and I'm going through fertility treatment, but what sort of parent do I want to be? What sort of lessons do I want to teach? What, mm, yeah. what sort of safety do I want to create? And what sort of communication and emotional intelligence do I want to pass on? Now, here's the truth. Left to me on my own without doing this work, I wouldn't have been passing on a great deal of emotional intelligence or awareness or communication skills to my children because I was just doing all I knew, right? And I was doing my best, but I was only doing what I knew. 
Now, this isn't a blame. It's not a blame thing. It's not like, oh, my God, you know, before I was so terrible. But I was very unaware of of emotions. I mean, how did I get to 38 years old? And I couldn't really name more than about 10 emotions. I mean, how does that happen? I didn't know what a healthy boundary was in work, in family, in friends. I didn't know what emotional boundaries were. I wouldn't know if it jumped me up and bit me on the nose, you know. So (laughs) this is the stuff that's really... Now I have got the hang of my mental health and I do understand on like a care level what I need and what I don't need. Probably the most important thing for me in my recovery has been learning about my emotions, learning about my communication style, my attachment style, because without that, you just go on to repeat what you know, which I realize I didn't know that much. Right. So. Mm. <laughs> I I think the I think what you said about emotions and understanding them like it's it's been such a huge like revelation for me like over the, especially over this past year when I've really started to like learn about emotions and learn about labeling them and sitting with them and understanding them and like you said what is this emotion attached to where is it you know where is it coming from just trying to unpack and unravel that because if you don't know where it starts from, how do you, how can you change it? And not to change it for that moment, but change it for the long term. So that's why I always, I try to preach about the importance of emotions and emotional intelligence because I know how much it's it's still a work in progress. Um, nowhere near perfect. Me that's too. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Me too. I think. We, I think with emotions, it's just one of those things that, you know, it's just part of our life. And, you know, the more we learn about them, the more we understand them, the better chance we have at, you know, managing them. So I totally, totally agree with you. And learning not to dismiss them. So um, learning not to be, you know, I've been known to be like a firework, you know, emotionally um, and very reactive. So learning how to not be reactive, but be responsive and learning how to be respectful of other people's boundaries. I was terrible at that before. I was always stepping into other people's space and trying to, you know, help. And I say that in inverted commas, help people thinking I was helping people. Well, look, guess what? I wasn't. I wasn't helping people. Like, you know, <laughs> but yeah. it's what I had thought was kind. It's what I thought was supportive. So it came from a good place. However, wasn't that helpful <laughs> to me or other people? Um, and, sure. You know, and also learning to, when you, when I got to the bottom of some of my narratives and working out where they had come from, that kicked up an awful amount of, and still does, kick up an awful amount of feelings about my childhood. And just, do you know what, giving my myself permission to acknowledge that that was my reality and, and, and just grieve, grieve for that, actually. Like, I've found myself grieving for pockets of my life where I felt a certain way, where I needed something emotionally and didn't get it as a child and and just grieving for that and then let, letting it go, 
finally, because guess what? I've been carrying it anyway the whole time. So I can either keep on carrying this big suitcase full of crappy emotions or I can sit down and look at it and actually own it and say, yeah, I did feel that and I did feel that and I am pissed off about that or I'm sad about that and feel that sadness now and you know talk to my younger self and say you know that all these things that I've told myself were my fault you know and and turn around to the seven-year-old Emma and go do you know what that wasn't your fault (laughs) and it's okay that you felt like that and I'm sorry that you didn't get that in that moment that you needed and feel that and let it go because you do feel lighter for it no for sure I I, I've said it once and I'll say it a million times it will always blow my mind the amount of stuff or how much our childhood affects who we are today and in ways you could have never even imagined or been aware of or whatever the case might be it's it's I think it's ridiculous but it's true it's true I just it's hard for me to comprehend how much it affects yeah and um language is really important um I'm realizing and learning about you know the language that we use around children or that was used around us as children um again in people's efforts to make you feel better or to fix a situation quite often that that really isn't what what we need as human beings what we need is to just be able to feel and to have someone sit next to us and say so here's a good example as my adult self when I get very triggered or upset guess who turns up well it's not 39 year old I've just turned 39 but it's not 39 year old Emma that turns up in that moment no she's probably about nine right so you know I t- I probably turn up to my partner as nine-year-old Emma I mean, looking for mm. some sort of comfort. And he has been doing a lot of his work as well, my partner. And uh, so we've kind of been on a, on a journey together, which has been amazing because we're both learning how to say what we need. And instead of trying to fix it, don't worry, that's okay, it'll be okay. We're both learning to sit with each other and say, what do you need right now? And yeah. He might say, he does say, I just need, I just need to be on my own for a bit. And me learning that that's okay and that's not rejection, which has been super hard for me because I get really triggered by abandonment stuff and suddenly, you know, go crazy, like inside, internally go crazy thinking that's it, you know, life's over, it's terrible, oh my God. And for me, when I'm triggered or upset and my answer is I just need you to sit sit next to me and hold my hand that's what I need you know yeah and I don't I don't need anything else (laughs) so as you were saying about you know things that affect us as children and so on and how those manifest at a later point in life I was watching something recently and I, I think about this a lot like when I have children what what would I, what are the lessons that I would like to instill with them that weren't instilled in me? But I watched something that was really, that really like helped me relax a bit. Because no matter, our parents, you know, knock on wood, thank God, had a great childhood and whatever. But you're, at the end of the day, you're people that are trying to raise other people. 
and they're people and we're just people so our parents have their own emotions their own issues that they've carried with them and they're trying to you know raise a child so no matter how or no matter what i do my child will have some issues that he's gonna or she is gonna carry with them at a later point in life but something i thought of when you were when we were speaking about the childhood is why do you think we only realize the effects like our what like the things that happened to us in childhood so much later in life and not let's say at like 15 16 you know in those teenage years why is it always seems to be when we get to our like late to mid 20s and 30s and so on that it really starts to like come to life because i believe um that we don't have unless we are being educated with emotional and communication tools actively as children and through into our early adult life i don't believe we have the skills to or awareness we only have the awareness of what is so when we're children we learn how to tie our shoes go to the toilet eat our food have our drinks we go to school we learn abc we learn one two three um we learn how to add up we have a vague stab at learning geography i mean i was never good at that but you know (laughs) so we learn (laughs) we learn these things right and we hope that when someone spins a globe we can guess the country but where's the emotional and communication education? Where's the sex education apart from don't get pregnant? You know, like where is the education on the real stuff that is in the bigger percentage of our lives? Well, for me, certainly, it was fairly non-existent. So it takes us to get out into the big wide world. And then for these learnings and teachings and I say that loosely because I don't believe that we have a lot of learning and teaching around our emotions when we're younger but the ones that we've gleaned to suddenly manifest in relationships in work dynamics and they cause us problems and all of a sudden we realize that our communication style at work didn't work and we're realizing that our communication style with our partners we're, we're bashing heads it's not working why isn't it working why isn't this why is this so hard we suddenly have all these feelings about ourselves that aren't great well, where's this all coming from and we start to question why doesn't it work because certainly when I was younger I always had the mindset well when I grow up I'm going to you know get a good job and I'm going to get a house and then life's going to be great and I'm going to have some kids and it's going to be perfect yeah, yeah. yeah so then guess what we get there and that doesn't happen or it happens but not quite as we have imagined it to happen and reality kicks our art that's basically what I think yep. so we're- <laughs> 100% <laughs> you know it comes along and it kicks us and it kicks us hard and we can either carry on so there's two types of there's two avenues to go down at this point and I see people go to choose one or the other typically people choose to just carry on everything's fine everything's fine everything's fine And, oh, no, we don't talk about that. And we don't do that. Oh, no, we don't talk about that. We don't say that because that will upset so-and-so. And and we don't do this because that will upset so-and-so. And And we have that type of narrative in our family dynamic or even in our work dynamic. Or you get people going the other route and they're like, no, this doesn't work. 
And I know it can work, but maybe I just don't have all the tools to know how it can work. So I'm going to go and do my work. And they seem to be the two avenues. And it, but it, it generally takes someone, something to push them to do it. And it's normally something not, not nice, not happy. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's a really good point about the awareness and the skills. And like you said, once you're thrown into the real world and reality and, you know, with work and all those kind of things, that's when you start to really learn about yourself and who you are, you know, from a mm-hmm. positive and, mm-hmm. you know, from a negative perspective. So I totally agree with that. It was, it was funny mm-hmm. that uh, listening to your episode with M that at the right at the end of it, you guys uh, mentioned a book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score, which I'm also reading at the moment. So I th- oh, it's so good. I Listen, I I think it's a great book. But personally, for me, it's very difficult to read because it's so scientific. It like there's, I've learned things and it's hard, but it's really hard to take these scientific principles and kind of put them in a language or in a way that I, you know, can actually understand them. But one of the biggest things I learned so far, I haven't finished it yet, was how people who have, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and stuff, how their brains kind of work and what states they are constantly feeling. I thought that was really, really interesting and how people who have been through trauma tend to repeat it. And I thought that was so interesting because I'm like, if you've worked on it, let's in quotation marks, and you've done the work to overcome that trauma, but you still repeat it in my mind. I'm like, how you know, that doesn't match. So I'm curious for you, what what are some of the biggest learnings that you've taken from that book so far? So I'm still reading it, um, but I maybe a better answer would come from the therapy that I've done around trauma work. Okay. So EMDR is the therapy, and it's spoken about in the book. Have you done an EMDR? No, I haven't myself, no. No. Okay. So um, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprogramming therapy, and now, I'm not a therapist, so I'm not talking about this as a skilled professional. I'm talking about it from the viewpoint of someone that has done it. Um, but the way that it was explained to me was this. Say, and I'm going to try and reframe trauma in a way that doesn't make people feel like that doesn't apply to me. So let's look at something a bit more a bit less harsh to hear something like a an accident sure. you have an accident sure. right and um not a big car accident but a small car accident but nevertheless the shock of it leaves you every time you're in a car like this you know like you're you're wanting to you're you're a passenger but you're wanting to put your foot on the brake you're wanting to put your hands on the thing you you feel tense you know tense and ready for anything that might happen because guess what you've just learned that it can happen so I'd like to put it in that context because not everybody will relate to trauma in a way of uh, you know everyone's trauma can look so different so let's put it in a context that maybe lots of people can understand now when an event happens to us say a car accident no nobody's been hurt but it was shocking nonetheless and it's left you feeling like a very nervous passenger afterwards in those moments emdr is built on the the theory of rem sleep 
that when we have REM sleep, we are processing and our eyes are rapidly moving backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, side to side. And in that mo in that REM sleep, we are processing events, things, feelings that have gone on in a really efficient way. So whatever's gone on, we're processing it and it gets tucked away, nice, neat and tidy in the long term memory, archived nice and neatly under the right letter. And um, in the future, should we want to go back and get that memory, we can very calmly go into our little archive. for. Oh, yeah, that's under tea. I'm going to look under tea and I'm going to pull that out and I'm going to have a look at that, that cup of tea that I had down the road. Oh, I can. I've archived that nicely in my REM sleep. So now I'm going to go. I'd like to think about when I had that tea. Yeah, I had that tea with my auntie. So I'm going to go into tea and I'm going to look at that tea memory. And oh, that was really nice. And we were there and all of that and recount it. Now, when something happens that is overwhelming to us, and that can be different for everybody, we don't get the opportunity to process that in a really calm, efficient way. So we store it in our short term memory. In that short term memory, it, it gets stored inefficiently, if you like. So it can then present itself to us in our day at any given moment without invitation. So when we've stored something in a, in a healthy way, processed something in a healthy way, we can invite it into our day as a nice memory or maybe not a nice memory, but a memory to recall. When something overwhelms us and shocks us, it goes into the short-term memory and we it can jump in. So I've had a car accident and now I'm in another car with another driver on a different road in a different country. But guess what? That memory is jumping in. I haven't invited it. It's here. Uninvited, making its present <clears throat> presence no, felt. Yeah, yeah. So EMDR is built on while you're awake, while you're conscious, you would re recount that memory in a safe environment after after creating yourself a safe emotional space. So there's work that's done before you actually start the, the processing, reprocessing, where they get you to really vividly bring in um, something very positive that feels safe. So you've always got that place to go back to while you do the work. So that, but the processing, the reprocessing, they make you recall the memory in vivid, as much vivid detail as you can. Uh, so smell, sound, uh, how you felt, what you're feeling in your body as you talk about it. Where do you feel it? Do you feel it in your throat? Do you feel it in your tummy? Do you feel it in your legs? Where are you feeling it? And then while that's going on, they will get you to do the same eye movement. And it can be by following the therapist's finger, a light box or tapping on your actual body that gets your eyes to go left to right, left to right, left to right, and sometimes sort of diagonal around. That is mimicking what our eyes do in REM sleep. So we are consciously, safely reprocessing that overwhelming memory, which has been stored inefficiently. So therefore, it just jumps in without an invitation. We didn't send that a birthday invitation, but it's at the birthday party. And we reprocess it in a healthy way. And we, by doing that, we become it becomes less intrusive. We become less sent. We become desensitized to that traumatic event, and we can start to recall it 
and we can start to get in another car again without being tense, without jumping, without wanting to put our foot on the brake on the on the on the wheel. So trauma, we really store it in our body and trauma is not always trauma like you'd read in the papers. It can be subtle stuff. But guess what? It shows up and it shows up without an invitation to the birthday party. It just turns up and demands cake yeah yeah <laughs> i i think uh, i love that example of using the car and i think you make such a good point that trauma is an all-encompassing thing i know typically we associate trauma with really you know serious things you know whatever mm-hmm. whatever the case might be but trauma like you said includes anything it could be the smallest thing that you know that overwhelmed you on that day and you're still carrying that and it's affecting you now in other areas of your life that you weren't even aware of because you're still carrying it. And I think that therapy mm-hmm. form of therapy is so interesting to be consciously processing that emotion while you're still in a, a waking state. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you because I know you've been working in management for over 20 years and management's all about dealing with people and on a consistent basis. So it must have been quite challenging to be a manager and to have to cater to other people's needs you know in in the working environment while you were going through your own you know mental mental journey uh, struggles and you know your healing journey so how was that experience for you how did you find all that well I think it may be better to ask the people that I used to manage how was it for them like um (laughs) (laughs) in honesty um so all you can do is show up and do your very best. And I of course. I hope that um, that's what I have done. So I've worked in management across um, publishing and then in the financial sector. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, you probably need to ask the people that I managed. I'm fairly, no, I'm not even going to say fairly certain. I am certain there have been days that I have showed up terribly um that being said I know that every day I did show up and do my best we are all human at the end of the day so it's definitely taught me to have more compassion for people and to try it's difficult when you're under a lot of pressure and you're working really long hours and you're exhausted and you're dealing with your own stuff. But I think it is important to always try. And I hope that I do do that to take the time to ask the questions that aren't work related and ask people, you know, when people are not, performing well and things are not going well for them there's always something more to it so I do always try and sit down and have that conversation not not necessarily a work conversation uh how are you conversation and not just a how are you yeah I'm okay conversation but how are you really you know yeah is anything going on for you uh, what's going on for you right now because I know firsthand that what's going on in your personal life will manifest into work. It will manifest into your relationships. It will manifest into your friendships. Can't help it. You can compartmentalize to a certain degree, but we're not robots and we weren't designed to be. So 
I think it's always good to try and sit down and really ask people. And I've certainly for the last five years have worked in a, well, more than that, actually, the last, since I had my breakdown and I went back into work, I was in publishing. I had my breakdown. I didn't work for a couple of years and then I went back into publishing and then into finance. And those industries actually are typically quite highly male dominated environments. Mm -hmm. So sitting down with a real lad and getting him to, you know, be brave enough to share with me that, do you know what? Life's not great right now and I'm really struggling. And it's not, it's not an easy place to put somebody, but I think as a manager, it is your responsibility to at least not interrogate but ask if someone doesn't want to share that you know you have to be respectful of that but quite often I have found especially in the last few years with the guys that I've worked with who've all worked in the international arena they're all expats they're all away from home they're all away from their family they're away from their people so it's even more important to check in with them and I have found that you know quite a few that other management would say that they're just being difficult they're just being this there's more to it you know they're struggling there's stuff going on with their mental health there's stuff going on in their relationships and to take that time for somebody I just think is so important um especially in an environment where everyone's told they've got to be tough yeah exactly and you have to be so you know work driven it's all about the numbers and it's about performance and all these things typically you know when someone's not performing well i guess the number one or the default thing that people would go to is that uh, this person is not doing their job properly or is not working hard enough but like you correctly said there could be ten thousand reasons outside of just you know work that are playing in, into that and it's important like you said to just all you can do is just ask. And especially as a manager, I remember my, in one of my jobs, my manager, he, so he did ask me when he noticed there was something, you know, something was off. And, you know, I was willing to share with him. And it was, it was such a simple thing, but I felt a lot more appreciated and I felt a lot more, I guess maybe, relieved or comfortable that I was you know that now you understand that I'm doing the best I can but there is other things that are playing into you know whatever you know whatever's happening at work or you know in terms of performance or you know whatever it might be so I think that's a such a crucial point that you mentioned and also I think um on what I've learned is that it's not always a numbers game it's not always a bums on seats game right um, I've worked in sort of not myself in sales environments, but I've been a part of a management team in sales dominated companies. And sometimes as a manager, you have to be able to help people see that it's okay if this job isn't for them. Like it's not a failing, you know, it's about having people in the right arenas and sometimes when you sit down and talk with someone the reason that they're not performing is because they just hate it or they're just just not for them and that's okay and I've had quite a few conversations with people where I'm like you know what it's it's okay this there's there is a part especially younger guys that I've worked with in the teens um 
you know, I say to them, this, this isn't, this won't be, doesn't have to be your only job, last ever job that you ever have. You know, sometimes it's about having compassion and, and helping someone see that maybe this isn't the arena for them. And that's okay, actually. It's not a failing. It's just, this wasn't the right, this wasn't the right dance floor for you, right? There's one for you, but don't keep doing something that makes you inherently miserable. And as much yeah. as part of my target was to, you know, build a bigger team, there's no point forcing somebody and then coming down on them hard. And it, it, I just don't get that. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's about sitting down and, and not me telling them, but asking them, you know, are you really happy? Do you love this? Like, is this really what you want to do? You know, um, you've got one life. Yeah. And if, they, and if you want to do this and you love it and you want to smash it, great, I'm here for that. But if you are coming into work miserable every single day and you are miserable because of your the job that you're doing because it just doesn't fit you, something else is calling you, then I implore you to go do that because we're never going to get the best out of you. You're never, get, you're never going to get the best out of us if this isn't really for you. And I think as a manager, it's really important to be able to have those conversations with people and, you know, for them not to go away thinking like they failed because it's not a failure. It's just not the right fit. And that's all right. Like you said, it's that those two words. It's OK. I think yeah. if everyone could just remember that no matter what you're going through, no matter it could be work, job, relationship, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, it's okay and you shouldn't feel ashamed or upset or disappointed by it because that's just how you feel and everyone's experience is their reality that's their truth so there's nothing wrong with feeling or thinking the way you do there's there's you know there's a whole like you said there's a whole world of potential jobs of options of potential relationships you know whatever it might be it's it's a big big world there's a lot of stuff out there so it's yeah. okay if this thing doesn't work out no, I totally yeah, agree. It is. It takes us time to find out what we want to do. And sometimes what we want to do changes. And that's okay too. Um, and I just think for you know, for me being in a in a manager's role, that's definitely been something that I think is important. Um it's you know, sometimes it's not always about you know, retaining somebody in a position that's just no good for them either. You know, and sometimes, weirdly, sometimes people need that, like, it's almost like they need, like, the permission to just go, yeah, okay, actually, yeah, this isn't for me. I want to go and do, or go and be a chef or whatever it is, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, be, be in an in arena, in, in the type of industry that you really want to be in. We spend a lot of time at work. <laughs> we do. We do. <laughs> I totally, yeah, that's crazy how much we don't think about how significant work is in our life, the role it plays, just from the amount of time you invest in it, the amount of, you know, effort, both mentally, emotionally, dealing with other people. And, you know, and like you said, eight hours of the day, we're at work. You mm -hmm. know, it's a big chunk. It's a big, just a third of your day before you and you got another eight to sleep and you know if you got another couple mm -hmm. to mess around with there you go but it does take mm -hmm. up such a significant part of work 
one thing you said that I I loved and it's just to come I wanted to come on to your podcast actually because uh, I I love the name first of all uh, vulnerability rocks I believe that's what it's called yeah it is <laughs> fantastic love it love it so much uh... um, the one thing you said that I resonated with so much and this is what I kind of preach for myself is healing starts when you start sharing and that for me is if I could get that on like a board and just put it up there for like everyone to see like guys please just speak just speak more you don't know what can how much benefit can come of this I don't think it's always the end all solution but it gives you a chance to get to that next stage so I wanted to ask you what was the vision behind the podcast what made you want to start it and you know how did that come together Mm. Um, thank you for that. That was very nice. Um, yeah, I mean, healing definitely starts with sharing. And, and by that, I don't mean going out and doing a public broadcast or doing a podcast that might suit some people. It might not suit others. But what I've learned is that all the time that me, myself and I and the only person that knows what's going on inside this head and knows what I've been through. That's an awful lot to carry. So even just sharing with one trusted person that has earned the right to hear your story, like someone, you know, it's not always good to just share it with everyone unless, unless you've done a bit of work and you, you've grown a bit of thick skin and, and you're, you're happy to take the good, the, the positive and the negative that would come with sharing publicly that's different but um just sharing with somebody can be is the first step to healing and it can be with a professional person it can be with a trusted person but the minute you do that is the minute that you take away the space for shame to live and breed because it does and it's the shame that keeps us quiet in our own steps to feeling better to being better um so for me yeah sharing uh, healing starts with sharing for sure um and it can be big or small but I promise you when you just do it even a small bit I promise you you'll feel better for it and you'll feel more empowered for it and the negative narrative that's running through your head that's telling you oh no you couldn't possibly uh share it with a therapist or with a trusted person because what will they think of me you know if you have that narrative going through your head definitely start with the therapist because guess what they're not telling anyone and they don't have any emotional ties to you whatsoever so you can emotionally dump in that space without burdening somebody and knowing that you are safe in that space um and you can move forward a bit lighter. And the whole motivation before for the podcast was really that when my life really fell apart in 2009 and everything, I just sort of lost everything overnight, you know, work, business, everything just came tumbling down. And um, I remember looking for help and I just couldn't really find much help. And 
I think my shame level was so high because I just thought, God, all of these things, I could never tell anyone this. I could never tell anybody that. So for me, the podcast is really just to inspire people to carry on for one more day as a start or even one more hour, if that's where you're at. I can remember being in a space where getting through the next 30 minutes felt impossible. Getting through the next hour was just monumental. Um, so to be able to listen to other people who may well have shared a similar experience to you, because that's the other thing. Quite often when we're in a place of turmoil, we believe or we tell ourselves we're alone. We are alone in this struggle. I am alone and I don't know where to go and no one can help me. And what am I going to do? And we internalize all of that. Now, I promise you, whatever you have been through, there will be a collective of people somewhere in the world, maybe not from the country that you were born in, but there will be a collective of people that if we went into every country in the world, we could pull them together in a room and I promise you, you wouldn't be alone. You would not be alone in your troubles so for me the podcast is really about showing people you're not alone in this trouble that you're walking through right now or the burden that you're carrying right now or the emotion that you're feeling right now so if you can hear somebody else that you can relate to and think ah they get this they get what's going on between these ears of mine in this heart of mine in this body of mine then that I hope might inspire someone to have have hope when the world goes dark because it does from time to time and think you know I can get up tomorrow and try again and that's really my only hope for it um I think that's an amazing amazing goal to have with the podcast I think you make such a good point that a lot of the times when the world does go dark, you do feel you're alone. And especially when it comes to things like mental health, like you said, you can always find a community that, you know, of people who have experienced something similar to you. But to have a podcast and share your own experience of mental health and your journey, I think is, it's, in, I, I love it. I really, and I really, really admire it because you don't know how, how you know how that could affect someone's life just by listening to that conversation it could be a a total game changer for them just by knowing that Mm -hmm. there's someone else who's been through something like this this is what they've done and you know what they did it so you know maybe i have a chance maybe there's maybe i can do this and Mm -hmm. uh, i just i love the vision for it i absolutely love it thank you i mean that's but that's it though that's it though isn't it like the i think I was listening to, um, oh, can you hear me? Yeah. I was listening to um, a podcast with um, Brene Brown. And she said that her, she's amazing. And she said that she went to her therapist for her work. And let me see if I can get this right now. Her therapist defined despair as believing. So when you're in a state of despair, believing that tomorrow will be the same as today. Now, 
as in when you're having when you're in a bad time and you're feeling despairing that the definition of despair is that tomorrow and the next day and the next day will be the same as today in my when I heard that and this is something that I've always believed is that when we lose hope that's when things get really dangerous actually to our own mortality and our own well-being and our own life because all the time you have some hope that tomorrow can be different we have the strength to stand back up and to try again so when I heard that quote I think it was two days ago I was listening to it and that therapist definition of despair it really mirrored what I've been thinking of when you lose hope then you know if you have hope then you have the hope that you can get up and it could be different tomorrow right and that's what can keep you going so then by exactly. in contrast the definition of despair is that every day tomorrow and every day after will be the same as today to me that means we've lost hope right so we come full circle but um yeah that's really what drove me to start it <laughs> <laughs> no i think um I wanted to, first of all, commend you for your healing journey and everything you've done over the, the last 10 years because I can't imagine myself, you know, going through it. But And to hear your story is really, it's really inspiring for me because I'm like someone who went through all these troubles with, and look at you now, you've got you know podcast going and it's all about vulnerability and just giving back and helping people i think that's something amazing and i want to commend you on on your journey i think it's incredible and you should be super proud super proud of what you've done thank um, you <laughs> and uh for my last two questions mm. i wanted to ask you number one what advice would you give to someone else on how to start their healing journey and what that you know what that kind of looks like and lastly what is the message that you would like all the listeners to take home today mm, okay so um if so a two-part answer to the first question if you are at the beginning of discovering that you have a mental illness and you are looking to recover or let's go a step before get diagnosed um there are various um online tests that you can do to help yourself get diagnosed if you're frightened of going to a professional how what i did so i went online and i did an online depression test i did an online anxiety test um when i started to realize that it wasn't depression on its own that i was dealing with i did an online bipolar test um, and I took those results to my doctor, which kind of fast tracked me through to getting a diagnosis as quickly as possible. So if you're suffering with a mental health condition, getting your priority has to be getting the correct diagnosis as quickly as possible. Okay. The second thing would be to don't be afraid of medication. It has a place. It has a time. It doesn't have to be all of your journey. I have now accepted that. It's not a case of I took medication, I came off it, I'll never take it again. It's a case of I took it, I'm, I came off it. If I need it, it's one of my tools I can pull in. And I am blessed yeah. that it's a tool, right? 
It is in my toolkit. My toolkit is vast. It's one piece of my toolkit that if I need it, I can pull it in and I can use that to my advantage to get stable. And then I go into my other stuff, which is my therapy, my dailies, my rituals. They're the things that you can do when you're stable. So diagnosis, get stable. And then how do you readjust your life? And this is where somebody who's not dealing with a mental health illness and somebody who is, once they're stable and well, would begin their healing journey is to start to get to know yourself. And I know that sounds a bit wishy-washy, but start with pen and paper. And every day, write down. So for example, on my journal, I will write down me. I will write down relationship. I'll write down work, friends, family as headers. And underneath, I will write down every single emotion that I have felt that day about that area of my life. You can go online and go to feelingswheel.com and it will give you a feelings wheel. And I'll write down every feeling that's come from there. And then I will write down everything that's triggered me. So everything that's irked me, everything that's driven you crackers, you know, everything that's upset you, something just jarred you. What was that? Write it down. And then try and work out in those moments when you were triggered, what was your narrative telling you? So for example, um, work, my emotions could be frustrated, embarrassed, um, worried, anxious, um, angry, disrespected. They could be my emotions. Underneath my trigger could be uh, got pulled into an office with my boss, told that my email was not okay and I need to do X, Y, Z to do better, for example. Then underneath that, my narrative could be everyone thinks I'm stupid. I'm probably going to lose my job. Um, you know, all of these things. Then it's really important to work out what part of that narrative is fact and what part of I just completely made up in my head. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then once I've figured out fact from fiction, what emotions under my work header were based on fact and what bits were based on my negative narrative? So which emotions was I feeling based on stuff I had just made up in my head. Now, this is a basic daily that I do. And um, also then to recognize any numbing out that you do. So numbing out activities, gaming, phoning, scrolling, eating. Um, and I don't just mean eating in a healthy way, but just, you know, uh, or, you know, drinking, whatever it is, what have you done to just numb out, to stop you feeling? Try and work out what you do. What are your numbing out activities? And then write down some wins, you know, like I was able to really go back over that situation. And I worked out that, no, my boss was just telling me I needed to work my email better. It didn't, doesn't mean that everyone thinks I'm stupid. It doesn't mean, you know, work out, bring it back around to a positive and start doing this. But also what you'll do by doing this every day is you'll start to see patterns. You'll start to see the patterns in your negative narrative, the patterns in your reactions. You'll start to see a pattern in things that trigger you. And then you can really start getting to work and you can start working out where this comes from. 
So the questions I ask myself is, in that triggered moment, so the email thing, for example, with the boss, um, and I'm telling myself everyone thinks I'm stupid, that negative narrative, when I'm feeling like that, how old is Emma in that moment? Am I the 39-year-old Emma with X amount of work years? Am I showing up as the 39-year-old, grounded, calm Emma? Or am I showing up as a 13-year-old Emma who didn't feel heard, who, you know, was told by her father that she was stupid? Is that who I'm showing up as? You know, so once you do this every day, for me, I start to work out, well, how old am I when I'm showing up? What 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 Emma's turning up? Is she seven? Is she thirteen? Is she thirty nine? <laughs> and then I can start to work out where these things are coming from. And when you can establish that, that's when it gets messy, but it's beautiful too because then your self awareness really ramps up, and you start to become so aware. And when you're then in that moment again, or a similar moment that makes you feel similar, you can start to go ah. You see that? You see that crazy SH1T that no, I'm about to do over there? You see that? That's a 13-year-old Emma right there. So now I need to take a breath. I need to just take a moment and separate my fact from fiction in real time and show up differently and just commit to not getting it perfect, but commit to showing up a little different every time and trying to show up a little better every time and that's when the work gets interesting and cool and you can start to really sit there and go yeah I did show up differently like that was pretty cool yeah so it sounds like the key the to start is number one like you said be if you think you have a mental illness get diagnosed correctly Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. get the correct uh, treatment i think you made Mm -hmm. a very good point that there's a time and place for medication and it shouldn't be seen in a negative way like you Mm -hmm. said it's a tool on your tool belt um and you also said that step one once you've reached a stable uh, uh, mindset is that developing that awareness asking yourself those questions figure out the patterns and then once you've done that for a little while and you and also the wins i think wins are crucial because that's what gives you the motivation Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you can start really getting a little bit deeper to understand like to go back and figure out what's going on and i think you said something really important that it's not about perfection it's about Mm -hmm. progress just getting a little bit better and showing up every day small wins compound that over a long time the results are exponential so mm-hmm. i totally agree with that and i think that's an amazing way to for anyone who's listening to this or for anyone who's struggling with mental health that's a great place to start and a great methodology to follow so i really appreciate mm-hmm. you sharing that it's, mm-hmm. i think it's super useful um the last message that you would like people to take home today mm. breathe <laughs> <laughs> breathe because quite often we forget to breathe um breathe take a moment be kind to yourself first before you are kind 
to everybody else. So be kind to you. Um, because unless you're being kind to you, it's not possible to maintain a kindness to other people on a sustainable level without sacrificing your own health. So be kind to you, breathe and, um, and honor yourself. Yeah. Be kind to you. I think that's, I think that's the perfect way to end this amazing, amazing discussion of Emma. I wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I love this conversation and I really commend you for all the work you've done and for being so open and vulnerable to share your story with me and you know with everyone else i think anyone who's struggling with mental health can take a lot from this um mm. and like you said just remember to be kind to yourself because at the end of the day you can only try do your best show up and the rest will fall into place so it thank will. you so much i really, thank really appreciate you. it thank you so much for having me i've loved it I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And to everyone, <laughs> guys, thank you always for listening. And as always, hope it helps. Peace.